1: Welcome to the New Books in Caribbean Studies channel on the New Books Network podcast. I am your host today, Ari Barbalat. I am blessed to be in dialogue with Dr. Hilborn Watson. He is Emeritus Professor of International Relations at Bucknell University. We are here today to discuss his new book, Errol Walton Barrow and the Post-War Transformation of Barbados, The Independence Period, 1966 to 1976. Published in Kingston, Jamaica by the University of the West Indies Press, 2020. Hilborn, I'm humbled to be in dialogue with you today.
2: Very pleased to meet you and to be in dialogue with you, Aaron.
1: To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired your interest in the topic of this book? Okay,
2: I was born in Barbados in the nineteen forties. Barbados was a British colony at the time. And interestingly, when I was a high school student, we I never took a course or a class on the Caribbean or Barbados. I would say that whatever I might have picked up about the history of Barbados was in a very descriptive nominal sense, and any reading of it had very little to do with actual lived political experience on the island but very British in its orientation and and a sort of a predisposition to think in British ways because what I would call the curriculum the high school curriculum whether it was in literature or in history or in politics always took the British vantage point as the starting point. So, in effect, when I finished high school and I had done what was called advanced level history, it had nothing to do with the Caribbean at all. It was British history from the Tudors, the late 15th century, right through the Hanoverians. And then there was the what we call European history from the 16th, you know, 18th up to about the mid of the 19th century, you know, the Thirty Years' War onward. So I came out of that knowing little, you might say, about Barbados. What I knew about neighboring islands had to do more with the flora. Trinidad was known as the land of the hummingbird, and it had, you know, pitch lake and oil. And Jamaica was about mountains, the blue mountains and coffee and so on. But there was nothing about the politics, the political experience of the societies. So after secondary school, then I left Barbados in 1965. I traveled to the United States on a vacation visa determined to study in the United States with some attention to the Caribbean, which I had never been exposed to. But the high school experience in Barbados was very traditional, very British. I remember, believe it or not, you were living in the tropics. And when we were writing what was called the GCV, General Certificate of Education, this was like school leaving, the questions were set in the UK and sent to us, and we answered the questions. The answers were, scripts were returned to them, they graded them, and then months later sent the results back. But we had no contact with any of those people. And I remember on the, the um, English language tests, uh, one question was, write and essay on a day in the winter so you are exposed mm-hmm. to 12 yeah. months of tropic tropical temperatures and I asked to write about the winter now of course I wrote the essay on the winter <laughs> I imagined the winter yeah and I yeah, figured yeah. well see you can think about something a place being cold you can think about wind you can never see snow or anything but this is just is a tip to give you some idea of what the thinking guiding that sort of of, of, of um, outlook at the center of imperial power. It was mm-hmm. what I call the moral epistemology of imperialism was writ large. And you never saw it in those terms from where you sat because you were being educated to be a good colonial subject. So that worked well until I arrived in the United States and saw a very different world. And there the curiosity and the mixing of these contradictory notions and processes began to strike or affect me in particular ways as I made that transition. My major subjects in high school uh, were Latin and history and economics and British politics. And I know from the outset that I wanted to, be, to attend the university where, not the Latin that would go, but the history and the politics and economics would sort of come together. And my undergraduate work was, major was in economics. I did a double major, economics, and what was called government at the time for my undergraduate degree. And I went to political science and did a doctorate. But I brought these things with me, right? Now, you ask, well, so what was this thing? that I remember... Once the headmaster of our school sent me and a couple of other kids to a radio program. And the host asked each of us what we wanted to do with our lives. And then it got everybody wanted to be a teacher or a nurse or whatever. And when it got to me, I said, I want to become a doctor of philosophy and teach in the university. He said, What? How are you going to do that? I said, Well, I don't have a clue. But I know I want to be a doctor of philosophy to earn something called a doctor of philosophy, to become a doctor of philosophy. No idea what it entailed, Harry. It sounded so fascinating and fantastic to me. But it was here. And it happened. So it was a very interesting experience. The contradictions of living in a colonial society uh, were what they were. But there was a way in which things came, came together for me in a remarkably... Interesting
1: way. What are the primary themes in this book? What message does this book convey? What story does this book tell? Okay.
2: Now, a very good, a very interesting question. Now, um, for me, I remember having read uh something by a Nigerian literary person named Chiny Achebe. And yes. Ache- Achebe says If the lion does not get to write his own history, someone else will write it, but it will not be the story of the lion. It will be their story about him. And unless he can then center himself to construct his own narrative about his experience and his role and so on, he will always be marginalized. So that struck me in a particular way and I thought about this work. And, And as I might have intimated not having studied anything about Barbados or the Caribbean when I was growing up in Barbados, I had to do that almost on my own in the United States initially, because there was hardly any of that being taught in the university you know at the time. And it was only when I got to graduate school that I began I had an advisor who had spent several years teaching at the University of the West Indies. He had done work at, at Manchester in the UK and then he taught in Jamaica for years. And we had a conversation and I said to him, you know, um, one of the areas of interest i have had is East Africa. And I've concentrated on comparative politics and I think I'm going to do a dissertation on East Africa. And he looked at me and he said, so um, why not the Caribbean? <laughs> I said, well, I don't know much about the Caribbean. He says, no, come on. He used to call me master. He says, Master. You've got to immerse yourself, begin to study the Caribbean, and then you write your PhD thesis on the Caribbean. I'm coming to answer your question in this circuitous way. So after doing work, I began doing my writing on migration, international migration, tourism, and related issues. And then um, it dawned on me, there is more that you can do going forward. And after teaching for about a couple more than 15 years, I remember attending a conference in in St. Lucia. This was in 2000. And at that conference, we had put together a couple of panels and we were talking about charismatic leadership in the Caribbean. And I wrote an article for one of the volumes on Errol Walton Barrow as a charismatic leader. So I took myself that summer to Barbados. I spent two months. I went to the archives and Parliament Library and talked to a number of persons and said, this is exciting because no one, they said, has done a book on or a book bar. Just did not exist. And this work, this is about bar and that process is the first of this kind, the absolute first. So I thought this would be a way to, become, to educate myself about Barbados in the broader Caribbean and wider world context. That was the first point. And to tell a story about post-war transformation written from the vantage point of, let's say, the, the masses of the people. Not that I could do that without paying attention to leaders and leadership and whatever. But I've never been charmed by the notion of the dominant or the, the great man in history. I don't see great men in history as isolated individuals. They make their mark in history through processes and their are tons of shoulders they have to climb onto to get where they want to go. So this is a story of the development of Barbados at a point where Errol Walton Barrow becomes the prime minister, having been the last premier. 1961 to 66 of Barbados. Barbados became independent in 66 and I wanted to study what took place on the island within a broader Caribbean and a wider world context under the leadership of Errol Bauer and the Democratic Labour Party. But it was not a biography and I think you will have noticed that from looking at the work. And I had no interest in writing a biography I wanted to study what one might call the political economy of Barbados in that particular period to tell a story about political parties, political leadership, the role of the broad masses of the people, how the society was transformed from what some call a collection of villages to modern, more integrated nations, so to speak. And the vicissitudes and contradictions there in foreign policy, domestic policy, questions about women and gender development planning and the range of other issues which I sought to address in that volume and uh, which turned out to have been a larger project than I anticipated because the University of the West Indies Press said let us in for about 275-300 you know this. What it turned out to
1: be. What would you, what like, would you like, like listeners to get out of our dialogue today?
2: My expectation, my hope is that um, people will see more clearly not only the role that Errol Baruch and his party and the government and the political process played in shaping the trajectory of Barbados, but to understand Barbados in a what I call a, in a more dynamic kind of context, bearing in mind that. If you were to go to the library or you go online and look for um, scholarly books on Barbados in the period since the end of the Second World War, you wouldn't find many. It's not that nothing was written, but this was the first of its kind. Because interestingly, there when I arrived at the Barbados National Archives to look into this, and I asked for a meeting with one of the senior staff persons, a guy came out and he said, "I have no idea how you are going to do this. I am not sure this can work. We have nothing in here on Mr. Barrow. No books, hardly enough. Maybe a couple articles, and certainly we don't have papers. We never got access to his papers. We don't know where they are, you know, or anything." Says so, so, how are you going to write a book like this? And uh, not a, prime, a former prime minister who is now no longer with us, Owen Arthur, we were sharing office, an area and a building. He had uh, to come out of politics for a while. I was given an office, assigned an office close by. And we sat and we chatted. I had known him since the 70s when he was a graduate student in Jamaica. And he said, Hilborn This book you want to do cannot be done. He says, I have been in politics for a couple of decades. I have sent out my assistants to research stuff about Barrow and nobody can find anything. You can't write this book. And I said to myself, you think so? (laughs) And it was the way I went about it. I could have thrown my hands up and said, it can't be done. But I immersed myself in parliamentary debates I immersed myself in tons of interviews that I conducted. I immersed myself. I studied government planning, documents, and so forth. And looked at I looked at historical records. I looked at the Ministry of External Affairs documents on foreign relations. I looked at Barbados, the United Nations, the World Bank, the IMF, and I began to construct if you build, a framework for analyzing these issues and a narrative of a picture that began to take shape so I hope that readers, or listeners, I'm sorry, would come away from this saying, okay, this is worth looking at. And it's not only Barrow, but none of the leaders of Barbados, going back to the 1940s and 50s, have had much written about them. More was written about a man called Bradley Herbert Adams than anyone else. And by the way, the books that were put out on and about Adams were written by a high school teacher, not by university professors. So there has been a paucity of scholarship on Barbados leaders um, by seasoned academics. It still baffles my mind. So I hope people will see this as a way of opening, an aperture, so they may become more engaged and read this work and begin to get a sense about what this change in Barbados has been
1: about. Did you personally change and grow during this book's research process as you underwent it?
2: Well, in the first place, for me it was a learning experience when i arrived in london at the acu gardens where the british national archives are located is located i found that for the first month i spent in there it was not taking as it were it was though i was in a class taking notes and i'm discovering so many things in i was discovering so many things about barbados and the former british what we would normally refer to as the British West Indies, that I felt I'd use my laptop and I would take notes. At the end of two months there, I had about 300 pages of notes. And the thing was, so what am I going to do with these notes? What are they going to help to inform, so to speak? So it was for me a way of becoming educated about Barbados, becoming exposed to literature about Barbados, you know, government documents, archival material, and so forth. And then after that, I said to myself, I could spend the next three or five five years and end it with 3,000 pages of notes, so what the heck will this be about? And then I decided, well, I knew I had an idea of what I wanted to do, because as I mentioned, back in 2000, I had presented at a conference on Barrow. And then the book was published called um, Caribbean Charisma in which my chapter appeared, you know, about Barbara Bar- and Bar- 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 Barbados. There were chapters on Fidel Castro and Cuba. There, were t- there was work done on Trinidad, on Guyana, on Grenada, and um, other parts of the, of, of the Caribbean. And that immersion was critical because it was a learning experience. How do I educate myself to get to the point where I am comfortable actually working on these two volumes? Of course, we're talking about volume two here this evening. So I learned a lot there and it was always in the, the center of my thinking, Ari, was that I am writing for an audience and I am imagining college students. I am imagining advanced high school students, and I am imagining technocrats and diplomats and others reading this work and locating Mr. Barrow in the context of Barbados in a, let's say, in a dynamic way because it's a very small island. I remember when I had finished my PhD thesis and I had sent it out to be reviewed. um, One person reported yeah, this is very interesting, but you know, it's, it's about British Caribbean, it's a small area. We don't think there's going to be a readership large enough to make publishing this worthwhile. And I was brought to my senses in the way, oh my goodness, I had never thought of that. For this on Barbados, I thought, let me get into this work. I'm going to focus on Barbados in the Caribbean, and I'm going to target the University of the West Indies as the publishing house for this. I could have suggested any other, maybe found other publishers outside. And I said, no, I want Caribbean people to have access to this. I want this to be reasonably priced and readily available and accessible. And therefore it was, as I said, a learning experience a way of educating myself and then hoping I would make a contribution at the broader level and that people would find it worthwhile.
1: Can you tell us about Barrow's various development plans for Barbados? How were they crafted? What factors determined the specific priorities to be addressed? Can you tell us about their short and long-term legacies?
2: Okay. Now, the first thing we bear in mind here was that as as a British colony, the British immediately after the war, the Second World War, began to present ideas about planning for development. The first was something called the, for the 10-year plan of development. And they simply brought together a few, um men, persons from the colonial office in the UK and mem- a few members of parliament and a few bureaucrats. And they brainstormed over time to talk about the priorities. And a lot had to do with infrastructure you know, in the colony, road building port develop modernization educational development health and other social welfare issues now by the time we got to mr barrow who became premier in 1961 um, an infrastructure had been set up you might say to inform what was called development planning and if you focus for a moment, you will discover that it was not peculiar to places like Barbados or the British West Indies, but all those areas where the British had influence it was or control, the question of planning for development. It was even something that was recognized and approved in Washington, D.C. by the Bretton Woods in, in entities like the, um, the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, popularly known you know, as the World Bank. And the plans were typically either three year development plans or five year development plans. But the interesting thing here to note is that this was generally called indicative planning in the sense that uh, certain indicators were targeted. And the idea was that the government would allocate resources, human, financial and other resources, To promote these plans, uh, persons with the expertise would construct them. They would be studied but reviewed by the political leadership, and then they would set certain targets. The underlying idea is that there was sufficient control over the development process by political decision makers, not only to devise plans, but to attempt to implement them. And it had more to do with expectations about what was possible than it was about having clear and concrete knowledge about what would happen. And this has to do with this notion of the so-called indicative factor. So you had plans like when the Barrow Administration came in, 61, 65, 65, 70, and so on. But, but there was never a development plan devise, approve, put into effect, that ever achieved the fullness of what was imagined be. And the reasons for that were very clear, not simply a matter of resource limitations and what have you, but the business sector, the private sector, I wouldn't say it was never involved, but you're dealing with Economic processes that are organized on the basis of capitalism and private markets. And the idea behind the government planning was if you present these and you can bring the private sector into this process and get them to see the, the significance of what you are putting forward, they would come on board and things would develop. Now, The government in these planning documents always offered what we call incentives. Incentives to local businesses, but especially incentives to international businesses, because as small import dependent economies with limited resources, you must always be relying on the international markets to get access to the technologies you're looking for to the investment you were looking for and the coming in of the sort of expertise and whatnot to help shape your trajectory. And in that context, it was always a matter of offering tax holidays to businesses, incentives, per- permitting them to export profits and what have you. And this was sort of like guiding principles. But as I said, there was never a development plan implemented that matured in keeping with projections. So by the time the first development plan was expiring and they were constructing the second, there was always a carryover of certain things from the first into the second, because the assumption was that, OK, we have to do more work here. It's not that there were no important achievements in The social areas of health and education and so forth. Very much so. It was not that there were not developments in infrastructure or to modernize agriculture, but if you rely, if you are dependent on export markets in which to sell your stuff and from which to obtain capital and so on, there are always factors that are way beyond your control. And therefore, you always face constraints and limitations. So the planning documents. Always covered broad areas about the economy, areas about social development, areas about family life, areas about education, areas about infrastructure and so on, and how to bring them together. But it was always directed through the political directorate.
1: Uh, Along the lines of what you've been alluding to, there's a quotation on page 314 that I'd be curious to ask you about. You write as follows: To his credit, Errol Barrow did not view natural laws the primary obstacle to economic and social change in Barbados. Rather, he understood that it was the racialization of the of the capitalist economic organization of the society, and the associated power relations that mattered most. He therefore wanted to bring the powerful economic forces within the ambit of state priorities to promote social change. Barrow also knew that the specializations of local capitalists did not offer any viable path to a competitive production infrastructure on which to build conditions for a higher material standard for the society at large. The point here is that the capitalism that dominates social life in Barbados is the real barrier to its expansion and therefore to upgrading social existence in the society. Can you go into more detail about what you're alluding to here?
2: Yes, the first thing is that the local business sector in Barbados is pretty small by world standards, but largely merchants buying and selling. Now, once you got to sugar, Or uh, agriculture, which was the uh, when Barrow came in in '61, was the dominant area of production. That was tied to what you might call secure markets, produce and export largely to the UK under special provisions. The UK had enacted the um, sugar, the Commonwealth sugar agreement around 1950, and the purpose of that was for the Caribbean, British Caribbean territories, and other British colonies that produce uh, sugar to have access to the British market at guaranteed prices. Because it was clear that since there was a narrow production base and these were not highly complex uh, economic processes with highly advanced manufacturing, secondary, tertiary and what have you, that there were certain fundamental limitations. So Mr. Bauer recognized that the agricultural specializations were what they were. The sugar industry in Barbados had been in significant decline for a pretty long period of time, which was not well understood or appreciated by large numbers of people in the society. The idea then was to focus on diversification, and much emphasis was put on tourism. It was assumed that there could be a spurt in manufacturing but there was very little of a diverse or complex infrastructure for that. The bulk of the industry, pardon me, had been around um, agriculture and sugar and related um, areas of, of economic activity. Now, Mr. Barrett thought that by making the strategy for development appealing to the private sector, that they would come on board because he felt that the returns could be mutually beneficial to the business sector, as well as to the society, because for him, it was imperative to uplift the conditions of the broad mass of the people. He's leading the political party, parties compete in elections, they want to win the next election, and therefore they are targeting in ways that would appeal to the public. Right Now, from that particular uh, vantage point, given the narrow specialization base, of the local businesses, a great deal of emphasis was put on encouraging or attracting foreign investment. And investors then would come based upon the structure of what I call the international division of labor, in other words, what type of capital would be attracted to a small island like Barbados or small islands in the Caribbean versus capital being attracted to larger European countries or some Asian countries with more highly complex and diverse production infrastructures. Mm -hmm. So his idea then was that you reach out to the business sector, you make the incentives available not only to foreign investors but also to some of your local people who are in a position to take advantage of them. As this was taking place, we have to keep in mind something else, that the government sector, the bureaucracy was growing. The number of jobs being created in the bureaucracy, public bureaucracy, continued to increase. They had begun to develop the University of the West Indies campus at Barbados. And you had the growth then of what you might call professional strata. And by note, these are the people now who need modern housing, modern amenities, modern services. And as the government supports the expansion of housing development for, you know, middle strata, bureaucrats and technical workers, there's going to be an increase in demand for what, you know, what we would normally describe as the, not, these are not large, but generally the medium scale things, refrigerators, stoves, and what have you. automobiles, modern amenities, furnishings, and so on. And automatically, where is that business going? The private sector. These are going to be your importers, the providers of these services, you know, through loans and what have you. The government is facilitating. Housing development. A lot of the sugar plantations are closing. The land is available. The government is making it possible to build middle, what what people call middle class housing in a society that did not know that on a grand scale, pardon me, up until that point. So it is this recognition of the limitations of the local business sector that puts the government at the center of promoting a, a broader. Unless let's say a more rounded notion of development because the private sector are been, is going to be driven by where they figure they can make profit. They're not getting into to be like the government or, or social providers. That's government responsibility. And it is how do you blend? How do you meld these? And this is the point I was getting at about the limitations of the capitalist sector in Barbados and the government pushing this particular initiative that worked very well to benefit the private sector and help to expand it. But as usual, many of them complain, oh, the government is intervening in the market and what have you, and yet those were the main beneficiaries. But that's part of an ideological kind of consciousness that if the government gets so involved, and the market is not doing what the market should do, maybe there are going to be distortions. I don't think that's to, to any serious criticism.
1: Can you tell yeah. us about? the Moyne Commission report, also known as the report of the West India Royal Commission. What were its consequences and recommendations for Barbados? What was Errol Barrow's perspective on the Moyne Commission's report?
2: Okay, now this takes us back substantively into, although it is raised there, this takes us back into issues that have more to do with the first volume than the second volume, because the Moyne Commission report the, in the 1930s in the British West Indies uh, there were what people call disturbances I call them rebellions across the British West Indies in the you know the sort of eastern area and the northwestern area from Jamaica all the way through you know, St Kitts and St Lucia and what have you the conditions of, of living and working were deplorable Barbados had a very high level of poverty a large number and it's been a, a colony with a relatively high uh population density and it was difficult for people to see a way out of their predicament and there were disturbances I said a rebellion in the 30s and that after that the British sent out and of course there were some deaths and and damage to property and whatnot. The British sent out a commission. They were always sending commissions to study the nature, the causes of this, that, whatever, as though they didn't know. But from an administrative point of view, you want to be as quote, concrete as possible. And this commission, headed by a, a peer named Lord Moyne, uh, came out to the West Indies and collected information in the various territories, held hearings to get caught a sense of constructing a report that was called the West India Royal Commission Report, but it was popularly known as the Moines because of the name of the person that headed the commission. Now, Errol Barrow was not on the scene in that time. Barrow was born in 1920. These disturbances occurred in 1936, 37, right? So he's a teenager at the time. Now, the Following the issue of the Des of the Moines Commission report, certain reforms were introduced, recognition of trade unions, enactment of legislation, you know, uh, actually indicating now the legality of trade unions because in decades before they were not they were not legal. But this requires going back even further, the point we don't have time to talk about here, that we might do when we get to the second uh, interview so the infrastructure for the reforms was laid. Errol Barra joined the British Air Force after high school. He, will, he received a scholarship to go to Codrington College to study classics. And he went home and his um, aunt, because his parents were living in New York at the time, and his aunt said, we have packed your suitcases for Codrington College. That's in Barbados. And he said, I won't be going to college college, where are you going? He says, England needs me more. I'm joining the Air Force for the Second World War or something like that. And he joined, not for this, the war had not yet broken out. Pardon me. I'm joining the Air Force. And he went off, joined the Air Force, did his initial training in Canada, and then went to the UK. So he was not, in other words, I'm trying to explain that he was not on the scene as a decision maker during the time of the Mine Commission. But the Moyne Commission had more. And the impact had to do with the reforms that were implemented in the late interwar period, especially after the Second World War, that brought certain changes to places like Barbados and, by extension, to other British Caribbean territories, because all largely they were largely involved in one way or other in that what called rebellious form of resistance to the continuation. Of colonialism and imperial practices has been the
0: norm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopifycom system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: There's a quotation on page 307 that I'd be curious to ask you about. You write as follows. There was hardly anything in the public policies both parties pursued over time that questioned, challenged or weakened white economic hegemony in Barbados. Rather than politicize and mobilize the working class to help demystify ruling class hegemonic ideology and fight to defend its own interests, the political parties organized labor leadership and organized labor leadership or encouraged workers to see themselves as a mass of atomist individuals with interests that revolve around workplace conditions, bread and butter issues, wages, income, and consumerism. Barrow's death left the DLP largely intellectually and politically rudderless. The study found that a fundamental weakness among the majority of the nationalist leaders and their organic intellectuals in Barbados has been the inability to produce an education strategy to prepare the working class and the society to understand the role the United States plays in the Caribbean. The University of the West Indies has been guilty in this respect, considering that there does not exist any of the three camp, that at does not exist at any of the three campuses, a research unit or center dedicated to the study of American power U.S. foreign policy, hegemony, and political economy, and the impact on the region, in reporting its findings and the public policy implications to governments and the societies. Can you expand and elaborate on this insight, on this passage for us?
2: Yes. No. interesting. Let me see how the, the most um, appropriate way to do that. Uh, largely, in places like Barbados, and I have heard it, I have, Listen, I have watched. You go to Barbados there, and you would—it would not be unusual to hear people talking about white dominance in the economy. Barbados, Barbados uh, began to undergo internal self-government in a, on a larger scale from 1951 when universal adult suffrage was introduced, and black majority governments took over effectively from that point. Now. At no point, and as I, I said, you, you read the passage, yes, there has been little, there's been a lot of rhetoric about this thing about white economic dominance, but I'm arguing that this had been the norm. It has a British foundation to it, about the free market economy and what have you. Uh the plantation agriculture, which is no longer really major. in in, in Barbados was dominant all practically all of the plantations of any significance were owned and controlled by white business interests clear links between agriculture and commerce in the country and uh, blacks provided the bulk of the labor force Right, the unskilled labor force working in the fields, working in the sugar estates and what have you predominantly it would not have been possible to operate them on quote white labor because the white population in Barbados has seldom ever been more than like five percent so to speak, right? So that is a is an important point to note there. But important to consider is that for the average worker, it has always been largely a question, how do we experience conditions that are uplifting? How do we improve the quality of life? How do we earn better pay for our labor? How uh, do we undermine drudgery and make working conditions, as you you might say, somewhat more fulfilling? Now, um, from that vantage point, then the governments call themselves social democratic. Both political parties and Barbados were very, very conspicuous in calling themselves Socialist parties, right, political parties, and then it raised the question of what does it mean to refer to a political party as socialist. and it never veered from a notion that was common in Britain in the 20s and 30s under what was called the Fabian Society, where you had social democrats who called themselves socialists, and the British Labour Party became somewhat of the standard bearer of this particular notion. You, remember, you might remember from your reading that it was not unusual in the UK for the government to have nationalized like the British Broadcasting Corporation or had brought nationalized steel or some mining and so on. Certain industries targeted <coughs> me, for government regulation and control, but the bulk of the economy in private hands. Barbados never even got that far, so to speak. Public utilities, but largely private economic con- control you know, across the board. Now, you go over to this point then about how the region has understood the role of the United States in the Caribbean. This is a very large question. We could look at the conduct of the Second World War and the arrangements that were made between the British, was the colonial power over the future. Direction of the territories at the time when territories are not independent and therefore they do not formulate foreign policy. They don't in get involved directly in decision making at an international level. This is for Britain to interact with its partners over the, the territories. But the United States began to play a very major role in the Caribbean long before any of this. You could go back if you want to target the part of course in the 19th century, look at what happened in terms of the Haitian Revolution that you know come into power in 1804. If you look at the, the the coming to existence of the Dominican Republic in the 1840s, if you look at the question of um the Spanish-American War, 1898, and then you go forward and you see this presence expanding by World War One, the US states to the Danes who controlled or co owned what would become the U.S. Virgin Islands, right? And the US, the, the U.S. says to the Danes, we would like those islands, we will buy them from you. And the Danes said, they are not for sale. And the U.S. said, you sell them to us or we will take them. What is your preference? Okay, okay, we can negotiate something. And the so-called Danish West Indies then becomes the U.S. Virgin Islands, right? Now, that is strategic around World War One, and the presence expands and it becomes consolidated. And after the war, you have the administration, which is saying we have a vision for the Caribbean. We'd like to see the Caribbean become more modern and dated and so on. And then the Cold War breaks out and all hell breaks out. And no longer is it a question of a priority of the economic development of the Caribbean, but the security interests of the United States. And by '47, you have what? Punta del Este would arrive where com- com- the Inter-American Treaty of Reciprocal Mutual Assistance, so-called Rio Treaty, is enacted. And when the U.S. turns up at Punta del Este and the Latin American governments are saying, well, our problem is the poverty and the destitution and the lack of land, and we need land redistributed in the United States. We did not come here to talk about any of that. One thing. Soviet Union is a threat. Communism is spreading in the region and we're not discussing any of that stuff with you. Security. By 54, our banks is overthrown in Guatemala for promoting land reform and what have you. I'm, I'm going through this here for you to give you a sense of the complexity. 53 British Guyana, the elected government is overthrown. The British sends down their forces. The US is saying to the British, don't play any games in this region. 47, 48, when the British summoned the elite from the British Caribbean to Montego Bay, Jamaica, to discover post-war closer cooperation, the Americans say to the British, do not allow any radical labor unions or whatever to get close to running any governments in these territories. We're not going to put it it." These elites are saying we don't want imperialism to dominate us. We want to form to the run the governments and enter into agreements with banks and so on, the American said, those issues are not on the table. They are not on the table. So you go through a process, and I'm arguing here that a lot of what becomes knowledge over time is not adequately studied in those, in, say, the University of the West Indies. The point of, I remember years ago when I was at Howard meeting a man from the, um, Center for Strategic International Studies in D.C. And he said to me, you know what I don't understand is that Caribbean governments through their embassies in Washington are always reactive and reactionary. They never take initiative on anything, but let something happen, they will send every member of the diplomatic staff to Capitol Hill to attend the hearing or give some talk on something. He said they're not proactive. He says there should be a center on American studies, if you will, within the University of the West Indies, so you can target particular areas for study and analysis and investigation, rather than this sort of helter-skelter uh, approach that was 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 involved. And that's why I made this argument about the university with, with respect to this particular issue. But that argument that the U.S. presence in the region has been strategic; it has continued over throughout the 20th century. It began earlier. Think of Jamaica with bauxite the beginning in the early 50s, Guyana, there was of bauxite in the Dominican Republic and Haiti, and the American presence has been there all along, and yet it has not been studied carefully.
1: You often you refer often to, to Delisle um, Worrell. Who is he? Can you contextualise him for us?
2: Yes. Delisle Warrell is a Barbadian. I first met him in 1973 when I was in, beginning to do research on my PhD thesis this was on the political economy of foreign direct investment in the Commonwealth Caribbean end of World War 200. He had just come back from McGill University, uh, where he was working on his PhD, and he was setting up a department of research, or a research department, in the Central Bank of Barbados. I did not know about him until that point. I was referred to him when I spoke to some people I was interviewing. He says, you have to talk to the Waryl at the Central Bank. We met then. And we have been in touch from time to time, and we've been in touch much more closely in, in recent times. He worked in the central bank of Barbados from the 70s until he left um, sometime before um, 2018. It it was when the Democratic Liberal Party formed the last government in Barbados. Um, he had left Barbados at one point, and he spent at least a decade working at the International Monetary Fund, in Washington DC. He's a highly trained economist uh, and central banker. He understands the region very very, clear, very, very well. He has a very close reading of all of these issues. He has a global grasp of, of money and banking and central banking in the region and he has published very broadly as a retired central banker. He is still publishing the brought out a book on small economies that was published by Rutledge uh, last year. And we communicate, you know, very, very broadly. But highly trained economists are very technically proficient and knowledgeable, not simply about Barbados in the Caribbean, but especially about these so-called small open economies in the world.
1: Can you tell yes. us about the Barbados Technical Institute? What were its origins and what way does it... Exemplify Beryl's attitude towards science and education in Barbados?
2: Okay. Now, the Barbados, what was called the Barbados Technical Institute, was a product of the 1950s. It was located in St. Michael, uh, around a place called Richmond. And there is. secondary schools located there that have been outgrowth from the Barbados Technical Institute. But the idea at the time of of promoting economic development in a very small country with a narrow productive base and uh, with limited opportunities for school-leaving people, uh, Mr. Barrow and leaders at the time felt that it was necessary to put some Useful emphasis on the acquisition of technical skills, right, which were lacking uh, in in large measure, you know, at the time. So, the technical institute morphed, and uh, you have also today, I would say, as a broader sense of what that was, something called the Samuel Jackman Prescott Institute, which is located and another area in Barbados. And the idea here is this. Barbados is a society where the dominant conception held at the very base of the mass population and all the way through is that learned people who are products of the school system, who are more intellectually oriented, people who might become lawyers, dentists, medical doctors, and so on. These are prestigious professions to be. That secondary education should not be about propagating technical skills across the board because they're not um, prestigious. They're not considered to be indicative of people who are going to do well in life and so on. But what became very clear to Mr. Barrow and leaders at the time was that there was a tremendous deficit. And if you began to produce people with the technical skills that can be harnessed to meet particular needs of businesses and, and, and small entrepreneurial entities and so on, it would be beneficial to the society. And I think there was a merit to that you know, particular argument. But it was difficult, difficult even to this day to, perhaps somewhat less so now than decades ago, to convince parents that, you know, supporting their children to become good at technical projects was worthwhile. I remember having a conversation with some business people in Barbados, you know, white business leaders in Barbados uh, going back to the 90s, and I was asking them what happened in Barbados From the time of the 40s and the 50s, then there was a reasonable number of black mercantile families, merchant families, you know, import, export, but largely importing products and selling and using local local products for the market. And why is it that today there are none of those? And the answer given was that the black people didn't want their children to become shopkeepers, they wanted them to become professionals. And I said, but for you all, what happened? Remember one guy said to me, I sent two of my children to Canada to study accounting and technical subjects. And he said, I had a few persons who came into our shop and asked, so where is so-and-so and so-and-so? Oh, he's in Canada studying accounting. He says, oh, I didn't know you need to go to university to sell salt fish and pigtails and what have you. But they had a different thing of expanding, diversifying, upgrading and upscaling their businesses. And you would need people with those skills to help do those things. That was not seen as glamorous by Large numbers of the black population. Now, this is not to speak negatively in that regard, because at the end of the day, the competitive pressures remain, and, and who remains, who survives, becomes part and parcel of that. But that was that's one factor that is worth keeping in mind. And then there is the the, the other side of it, and uh, uh, I use these anecdotes. I remember talking to. A friend now deceased, we were in high school together, and he became a secondary school principal. And when I interviewed him, he said, you know, Hilborn, um, I have been trying to tell the parents in the community that it's important to promote (laughs) agricultural science in the curriculum. And they shut me down and said, none of my children are going into the fields to do anything. But it's not field work. We have to know about agriculture. We have to study as a science. No, 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 no. That is not for my child. My child is going to become a doctor or a lawyer or something like that, but nothing to do with any agriculture. There's a long history of slavery, there's a long history of, um, you know, economic marginalization, low wages, and what have you. People favor agriculture, put the word agriculture in there, it can only mean being kept down because they want to see their children rise and prosper. Well, you don't have large numbers of people today in Barbados who think much about agriculture they're beyond that they're many of these heights and terraces and so-called middle class communities where people live and agriculture has bond down sugar is almost a in barbados and i don't know what the future is because very often uh, you go to supermarkets the prices are extremely high and a lot of the stuff is imported and if it's not imported for small scale you know, of local production, high prices, and so forth. But the technical institute became important as a sort of like a jump off point to produce technical skills uh, among segments of the population that could begin to engage productively. But it was never glamorous, and it never meant that these were going to be high wage earners, but they would fill a gap in an area where there was a
1: what were the dynamics of Barbados' relationships with other countries in the Caribbean during Barrow's tenure?
2: Oh, well, now this would take us back to the Federation of the West Indies, which was short-lived 1958 to 1962. The Federation broke up in 62. <coughs> I would argue, based upon my research, that the British played a role in that process. Uh, The idea was that the federation would develop and become an independent entity, an independent federation of the 10 territories that were the original members of of the federation. And however, for the British West Indies across the island, these are very tiny islands with very small populations, relatively speaking, by world standards. But every leader wanted to be like the top, force inside the society. You form a federation and they want the federation not to have a very strong central government that mandated and dictated to the territories, but a weak central government with strong unit governments. Well, that was a, a recipe for a disaster, you know, if you will. And by the end of that period, um, the British had made it clear, I read this in the archival material, the British made it clear in Jamaica there were issues about the importance of federation and, and so on. And the British made it clear, <coughs> pardon to Norman Washington Manley, that if Jamaica decided to leave the federation, there would be no penalty. And the pressure about the federation, it, it was conceived in an interesting way, as an attempt by the British, as their power continued to decline in the region and in the world, as American hegemony gained greater space uh, to sort of leave the move toward greater internal self-government and perhaps toward independence in a stable kind of way. Because the Americans were very clear in talking to London, you cannot, pardon me, part with these territories and leave chaos. It must be, this must be very well managed because we are not going to tolerate it put on our doorsteps, okay? And the British, therefore, saw Federation as a way to manage decolonization in a stable, predictably manageable way. But the dynamics and the dialectics seldom ever allow things to, to open up in the way you might necessarily expect. But the American view and fingers were always on the scales about how the British Caribbean would go <coughs> from the, the old colonial order to, to a decolonizing and a post-colonial order. And um, the collapse of the federation after four years was predictable. The leaders of the territories, <coughs> pardon me, kept insisting that Britain should finance the Federation lavishly, commit all the funds necessary for it. The British had a different view. Also, the Great Caribbean was not the only area where British imperialism had prevailed. And they were, they came out of the war <clears throat> fairly battered or heavily battered. And they felt that if they had made certain concessions to the region, it would be demands In Africa and other points, right? That they could not support, so they did not put up the resources. And then Jamaica decided to leave the federation. Would have been nine territories, and Eric Gillian said, "One from ten leaves zero. In other words, they're gone. We're Trinidad. We're going to move toward independence too. (coughs) Then part, then it left eight. And the idea was that some little eight that Sir Arthur Lewis wrote about in the book. And then Errol Barris said, you know, these little petty fogging, is it his term, um, leaders in these neighboring territories aren't ready for the challenges of the future. So Barbados is going to move toward independence too. <laughs> so it was a breakdown. By that time, there was very little left to talk about in that regard, right? So here you see dynamics in play, shaping the trajectory in a, a long, particular path, <laughs> some of which were predictable, I would say, and the coming to an end of the federation then opened up the space for everybody becoming independent more or less soon or later across the period from the time Jamaica and Trinidad did in sixty-two, Barbados and Guyana sixty-six, and other British former British territories from the into the late nineteen seventies and eighties. See, so that was largely that context.
1: Uh, on page 51, uh, you write as follows. Sir Shridath Ramphal Shridath, provided yes. a more accurate explanation in an interview with the author when he pointed out that Bera was very nervous about establishing diplomatic relations with Cuba, even after Forbes Burnham of Guyana and Michael Manley of Jamaica tried to convince him of the merits of such an initiative. According to Shridath, Barrow agreed to establish formal diplomatic relations with Cuba only after Eric Williams of Trinidad and Tobago decided to do so. Barrow saw Williams as a moderate force with greater credibility than Burnham and Manley, who were her, his friends. Sir Shridat emphasized that Barrow was also hesitant to join the non aligned movement and did not see establishing diplomatic relations with any quote unquote communist states as a realistic option for Barbados. It would take Barrow six years before he established diplomatic relations with Cuba, and only after Guyana, Jamaica, and Trinidad and Tobago did so. Barrow did not view the achievement of national sovereignty, or what he called a, quote-unquote, consciousness of self, as the, quote-unquote, closing of a door to communication. He said, quote-unquote, national consciousness has the power to give us an international dimension knowing ourselves we can meet the world without fear or loss of nerve for our experience even if on a small compass and in a minute times minute time scale is relevant to the problems of this generation and the future of mankind can you say more about this can you elaborate upon this
2: yes now on um... The larger context, of course, was, remember, um, the Cuban Revolution came to power in 1959-60. The Cubans um, decided they were going to follow a different trajectory. They thought that they could um, nationalize foreign holdings, and this would not cause... uh, an earthquake, so to speak, in the relations with with the United States. Of course, the United States took the position of something called the sanctity of private property, as though it's natural as opposed to historical, and viewed any move by Cuba to nationalize foreign holdings as contrary to the established, norms of the established international order. what the Cubans did, (coughs) say to the Americans, here in the National Bank of Cuba are the funds. You're putting the money there. You have been paying taxes on the book value of your assets. And this is what we're going to pay you at. And the Americans scream and said, no, no, no. There's the market value. We need to be paid if we're going to be. Paid. The Cuban said not in a thousand years for all your years based on what the book says is what you've been paying taxes and now you want to pay you at market. Let's say you were, the book said that it was worth, the tax was $1,000, because it was assumed that the property was worth, let's say, a million dollars. And all of a sudden you're saying the property is worth 200 million, but you're paying taxes based upon a million. What would we give you on the basis of what you say the market does, when you've been paying on the basis of what the book says. They have never taken the money. <clears throat> no, that became a big issue. And then there was the Cuban Missile Crisis, you remember. The Cubans had assumed that things would work in a normal way with the Americans after nationalizing and whatever. <clears throat> and sooner or later, they found that they didn't have that support from the Americans. The Americans thought to get the West to boycott and isolate Cuba. And sooner or later, the Missile Crisis came. You remember that of the US and the Soviet Union. And, and so on and the world came close to what people say was the brink of a new possible nuclear war in 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 the world with the Caribbean at the center now um from there there was this broader issue then of quote the establishment of Cuba as a quote, communist state and how do you deal with this space now um in the Caribbean the Americans had set this this the tone, if you're going back to Guyana in 1953, they claimed that Charlie Zagno was a communist and he made a lot of statements expressing support for the Soviet Union and so on. He was a Guyanese, he studied at Harvard University, he went from there to Evanston, Illinois, he did dentistry and he met a woman there who named um, <clears throat> Janet, she became his wife and uh, moved to Guyana, and then there were accused of all kinds of shenanigans and so on. This was very common in Barbadian politics, where Grantley Adams and company accused Barrow and company of being communists and being directed by the communists in British Guyana and so on, which didn't really make any sense, but it was for Cold War ideological purposes. Now, coming to the, <clears throat> the latter period, then, uh, with Barbados independent, Guyana independent, Trinidad independent, and and jamaica independent as the major countries coming out of this british imperial uh, uh, project the question then became what do you do about cuba the non-aligned movement or the movement of non-aligned countries as it was called uh jamaica and guyana were very visible and prominently harry was a very cautious fellow and all of these matters. He felt Barbados was very small, a tiny island, and they couldn't afford taking, quote, big risk. But at the same time, he felt that the risk would be greater than the benefit. And for Mr. Barrow, um, he came, He made it very clear fairly early upon Barbados becoming independent that Barbados was part of the West and it, you know, adopted and followed. Those principles of the inter American system, in large measure, and that for what it was worth, he was not going to take any chances. But there was a larger issue. When Barbados was going through this dec- late, the latter phase of decolonization, moving toward independence, you had members of the opposition, Barbados Labor Party, who kept accusing Barrow and his people. As co- of, co- of being communists, which they were not. They were never, ever communists as we understand, you know communist philosophy, communist doctrine and so on, especially for two political parties where they they always considered themselves to be quote, socialist parties. Now uh, Barrow was a signal was placed on Barrow, so to speak, and Mr. Barrow went out of his way to convince London and Washington that he was reliable. He could be trusted because they had said about him to the colonial office in London that if you allow Barbados to become independent under Barrow, he will take the country into the communist orbit. And therefore, he was extremely cautious. He said, I can be trusted. And this helps to explain, in part, his hesitancy when it came to this question of extending diplomatic relations to Cuba. But this was also the period of what broader international framing, the national liberation revolutions in Southern Africa, Mozambique and Angola as cases in point. And of course, we had the issue in Southeast Asia with the war in Vietnam and the overflowing into neighboring countries like Cambodia and so on. Now, in this particular context, um where you raise this question about Cuba, um it is true that Guyana and Jamaica, through the non-alignment, had also adopted a broader, sort of more third world-oriented foreign policy, where Barrow was cautious in these matters. He looked to Williams, and it was, as I said in the word, and as you quoted the passage, when Williams decided he would extend diplomatic relations to Cuba, Barrow decided after that, yes, that the time could come. Ramfau is correct because he held high office in the government in Guyana, At the time, right? And in our interview, he made those points, you know, clear. Now, there's always nuance here and nuance there. But that is what I was trying to capture at that particular moment. That is why I was consistently talking about the cautious disposition of Errol Barra on a number of issues. And he always felt, small islands operating in a large sea, what are the risks? What is the... Cost of re- high risk taking. Now, he might have, from my point of view, read the situation in a, ver- in, a- in a more narrow way than perhaps might have been necessary. Because if you go back to the UN and you look at the debates that were taking place about who should occupy the quote China seat on the Security Council, in Taiwan, <clears throat> increasingly third world countries kept voting for the People's Republic of China to occupy that position. And it came to that. And that was a moment of shift when into the 1970s, where the cost to taking a stand such as extending diplomatic relations to um, Cuba was not was not as high as it might have been a few decades ago before. And when the Cuba started ferrying troops to Southern Africa, Angola, Barrow was allowing the Cubans' planes to, to refuel at Barbados because. Uh, then after that, and when they put pressure on Barra, then they started refueling fueling in Guyana. In, in but Barrow recognized some things. He talked about self-determination, independence, anti-apartheid as pillars of Barbados foreign policy. And he saw <clears throat> giving a nod to Cuba as important in that kind of struggle, which is part of something broader, so to speak, right? And and, and that, I mean, there's a lot more to be said about that, but I'm not sure we've got the time to delve it does more broadly, but, but I hope that, that that response helps to shape a, a broader understanding of what's at issue.
1: Who were Errol Barrow's key advisors? What was his relationship like with them? How was he influenced by his advisors?
2: Well, he had advisors, you know, as what we call cabinet government, right? Where you've got ministers of the Minister of Transportation, Minister of Housing and Urban Development, and so on. The cabinet would meet and they would discuss issues affecting the various areas of government. But he also had advisors outside, and some of his advisors were from the private sector. Now, the broad business sector in Barbados, with all it, which was predominantly all big business, almost exclusively white-owned were skeptical of Mr. Barra all along. As a matter of fact, they were skeptical of Barbados becoming independent. And some of them and left and went to Canada. Some went to Australia and New Zealand. Some went to wonder. A few might even go into South Africa, because they couldn't tolerate the idea of majority black government leading Barbados into independence. Now, but Barra did have friends in that in that circle, but there were not many of them in. There. And he worked much more closely with a lot of investors from outside who set up businesses in Barbados. Now, as I said, the local business sector people benefited immensely. They did set up a small business, what the equivalent of you know a small Barbados development bank to promote small business development. That never yielded much by way of any significant <laughs> results because there was never... To develop that they did not develop in Barbados any cadre, significant cadre of black capitalists operating at a level that competed with established white businesses, business hegemony in Barbados at any point, not in terms of practical businesses, some people might have acquired money that they invested but always kept it. <laughs> out of the limelight i remember being there sent um, as it were suggested <clears throat> suggested me to interview a black businessman in Barbados. people kept saying to me the man was rich extremely rich <laughs> and it would be important to talk to him and i got his number and i called him and i told him i was doing this work in Barbados and baron i would like to talk to him and he said yes 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 come over I spent two hours with that man, and the man gave me no information on anything. Anytime I asked him about the scope of his businesses, he deferred. Anytime I asked him about, uh, were you able in your experience as a businessman to acquire wealth? Then he, said he never answered any questions. I never learned what he had the investments in. I learned the man was Skillfully crafty and evasive to the point where people said, Well, if you don't get anything from him, there's hardly anything you're going to get, so to speak. From him you want. But um, <coughs> I would say, pardon me, I would say, um, in large measure, that um, Mr. Barrow had advisors from the in his political party, he had advisors in the private sector. He was a very amenable fellow. He came from a very prominent black family in Barbados that owned estates and sugar works going back to the early 20th, late 19th, early 20th century. It was on his mother's side where the money, and if you will, the wealth was not on his father's side. So he grew up with the confidence, the confidence of a person who was assured, self-assured, you might say, and he did not allow people to, to take advantage of him. He let people know that he could, was born on a plantation, but not as a laborer, a plantation owned by his family. And very few blacks at the time could have said something you know, like that. And um, in, in that context, Baruch's training was in law and economics, He said when he came back to Barbados in 1950, his plan was idea was to go get involved in development, and he was was encouraged by Mr. Grantley Adams, who was the head of the Barbados Labour Party and the ruling government at the time, to get involved in politics. (coughs) He ran for office and won. He would subsequently lose until he won again and continue to to be the the representative for that constituency mm-hmm. in the St. John Parish until he he passed away <clears throat> decades later. So he he always had a good relationship with his advisors. He was never a cantankerous person. He was a person who said that ideological differences should never be the basis for being unable to find points of cooperation and unity with people who shared different perspectives. And then he came to that other point, you asked me, and he basically was saying that independence and sovereignty are not to be used to close yourself off from the world (coughs) within a nationalist sort of um, cocoon, but to use it as a basis for reaching understanding with others and struggling more effectively for the achievement of what I would call our universal humanity that nationhood and so on ought not to be seen as an obstacle then for building greater human
1: understanding. What were the causes of Barrow's death? What transpired at his funeral? Who spoke what was said in the eulogies?
2: Well, uh, you will notice from the... Um, that chapter... <coughs> pardon me. That um, not Barrow had coronary disease. I never interviewed Mr. Barrow. By the time I got into this work, he was already dead. I got into this work after 2003. Barrow died in the 80s. Now, his uncle, man by the name of Charles Duncan O'Neill, who features prominently in Volume 1, there was a medical doctor. He was his uncle on his mother's side. He studied medicine at Edinburgh in you know in Scotland and came back to Barbados and founded an organization called the Democratic League in 1924. And that laid the basis for embryonic progressive change in the island at the time. Now <clears throat> Barrett's uncle died. Very early, at age 57, of cardiac arrest. Barrow died cardiac arrest. His daughter died some of the cardiac arrest. So it was there, you know, in in the family. I don't have details about the intricacies. What I remember hearing and reading was that doctors had told Mr. Barrow much earlier that his condition was really bad and he needed to make major changes in his life. Otherwise, the future would be very unfavorable to him. And I don't think he ever made those changes. He had become quite obese, quite overweight. And I don't know what else he might have been, along with the cardiac issues, if there was, you know, hypertension or diabetes or whatever. But, um, The the rough and tumble of politics and the lack of adequate sleep and the overwork and what have you, all those things combined to take a toll, you know, on him. And um, in the end, he paid, you know, that ultimate price, so to speak. But Mr. Barra had made it clear that he did not wish to have a traditional funeral service at his death, after his death, and he did not wish a typical burial. He wanted his to be his remains to be cremated, and his ashes scattered over the Caribbean Sea. That was granted. He had used the term. He said he did not want one of those cattololing, It's like the kind of service you have in a church, you know, for a funeral service. Where a lot of hypocrisy is expressed, and people come in and say all kinds of things that they may not mean, you know, praising you, and they may have a different attitude. He didn't want any of that. And as a matter of fact, he did not even want a viewing. And the people complained bitterly, and his family, you know, relented and allowed that they had this thing at the National Stadium for a public viewing. He, he was a private person in that sense. No big mausoleum or anything to be constructed, you know, to quote, keep me in memory. Simple cremation, simple scattering, and that was it. Right? That was his wish. But in that, as I just said, some of those conditions, most of them were met. But <clears throat> Therefore, since there was not that kind of service, you didn't have a lot of people eulogizing him. They insisted they need a barrel. They eulogize him. But in the newspapers, there was, there was special coverage of the death and the service that was held. And from the trade unions, to religious people, to prominent political persons and ordinary people, you will see there as I quote them in from the special edition of the nation newspaper, uh, the coverage that was actually done there celebrating Mr. Barrett as an outstanding man, a man of no mean beginning if origins, if you will, but one who was comfortable as a politician, as a leader, coming into the poorest home and sitting and having fellowship with parents or with family. He played a political role. He was accessible. He was easygoing and so on. But he was a populist leader in that sense, but not with the arrogance of the deceiving kind of politician who promises you the world when they know they might only be able to deliver, I don't know, a village.
1: What role did women play in the Democratic Labour Party? How did the... Democratic Labour Party or DLP view matters of women's leadership?
2: The it's a very in, interesting question. Um Mr. Barrow, in a pragmatic way, always said that he had done a great deal for women, households, families, given that Barbados had a very high percentage of female headed households and he felt and he said that the policies which were implemented from social welfare policies, economic development policies, educational change and what have you had benefited women and households significantly and questions were raised then and they were noted, you will notice in that chapter there was a question what more do women really want Now, um, I would say that leaders of the party somehow took their cues from Mr. Barrow because I remember interviewing a number of men and were mainly, I did not, I interviewed women as well who were associated with the Democratic Labour Party and the perspectives differed across, you know, gender lines. And I remember a former prime minister saying to me, that women in Barbados did not like, quote, the rough and tumble of politics, and they preferred to push men. The women I interviewed said, it doesn't make any sense. They were never accorded the respect and the visibility that they deserved. Now, I did speak with another person, now deceased, who said to me, we are never one of those gender parties, you know. Um, We do whatever we could to push, advance the interests and needs of women and families, but not in this gender thing. And I noticed that when I talked to women who were in the party, said a lot of the men, the male leaders in the Democratic Labour Party, always thought that any woman who joined the party was very present and very active, but always trying to use that to get close to men they wanted to be close to. So a very negative, vulgar and crude way of of making sense of women's political interests and aspirations. I don't think the party institutionally was very, it was not progressive on those matters at all. As a matter of fact, you'll notice that I talk about the big difference between the two parties, Barbados Liberal Party and the Democratic Liberal Party, you know, on those matters. And I remember um, Mr. Barrow himself had raised this question about what more do women want. Now, both parties had what we might call wings or entities that were led by women. But in a society like Barbados, extremely patriarchal, no matter what anyone might say to you, women have made tremendous strides professionally and in other ways in the country over the decades. and Both political parties, education-wise, career-wise, and so on. And women are the majority of the population. Women, um, large numbers of women hold home mortgages. Uh, They have taken the measures to advance themselves and the interests of their children and family in spite of what had been thrown at them. But the men in both parties always saw women, largely, not exclusively, playing supportive roles. You know, you get out and you do fundraisers. You get out and you go to the communities and you try to encourage the supporters and others to both vote in elections. You get out and you were always there to back the men, the male leaders, and to do whatever was necessary to help the party. But the Democratic Liberal Party itself could not, in the early decades, brag of having put forward large numbers of women to run for office. It was largely a male thing. And that was not the same in the Barbados Liberal Party, where you had a number of women... Who ran for office, the first woman to be elected to the House of Assembly in 1951 in the parish of St. Andrew where I was born um, uh, ran on the ticket of the Barbados Labour Party. Now there was no Democratic Labour Party in 1951, you know, to be honest but when the party came in and won the, the first election it won was 1961, it was basically a male ticket and gradually, you had a woman here or there. Earlier in the vestry system, you did have women who ran and were elected to the vestries, the local government system. But this was long before, even before Mr. Barrow was uh, was back in Barbados from the war and so on. So, the attitude of the men I interviewed, those attitudes, always portrayed women as secondary, not as equal in the affairs of the party. And the main party leaders were always men, all right? So there was no attempt to cultivate cadres of female leaders at any level, but because they had seen this matter in pragmatic terms. I interviewed a number of women, working class women, who who swore about, in very positive terms, about Mr. Barrow and the advantages that came. And for them, those matters were not significant. But that was not, pardon me, that was not uh, something that I was not surprised to hear that, because at that basic level, the question was how are our material interests advanced, was a question of health, education, housing, and things that matter more fundamentally on an existential basis. How are those matters being addressed? And they thought that reasonable progress was being made. But for women who were professional women, they did not see things in the same light. They were far more skeptical and thought that the men were always trying to marginalize them and I don't think there was any doubt, you know, about that. And even until you notice that the first prime minister of Barbados, Mia Amor Motley, uh leads the Barbados Labour Party. Um, the Democratic Labour Party has, in more recent years, produced, you know, female leaders. But this has come in a moment when the party is. In the wilderness. There's lost two consecutive elections, 30 to zero. And the question is, what does it portend for the future of the Democratic Labour Party? It doesn't mean that the Democratic Labour Party has an absolute control over power and is likely to be there indefinitely. Any party can be defeated if the circumstances, the combination of factors, you know, are if the combination is favorable, you know, so to speak. But um on the Pardon me at the end of the day there is no doubt that good progress was made in barbados that benefited women children and households but i don't think that the party itself through its institutional leadership could come up and say to you or me that they were big standing bears for promoting female leadership in the party you know or the government it doesn't mean that women didn't become <clears> they <throat> didn't occupy certain middle-level positions in the public bureaucracy and so on. But that's a different matter. That's not about the structure organization of or the party as an
1: institution. As we bring uh, like yeah. our dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this work?
2: Oh, well, um, the 2016-17, around that period, I completed the research for this work. At that time, I got in touch with the University of the West Indies Press to find out about their interests. And they said they were very interested, and they asked me to submit the manuscript. Now, at that time, I had this wild idea that the work would come up as one volume. But at that time, it was 700 pages. Uh-huh. And they said to me, after a few months, this would be a nightmare to work with, to copy edit, and um, you have a choice. You can reduce this to 375 pages by revising it and send it back to us, or you may think of two volumes one on the late colonial period and one on the independence. I'll take the second option. I'll give you two volumes. Mm. It was so much easier to do. <clears throat> for me, it was going to be a nightmare to take 750 pages and condense that to 350, right? based on what I had done. So I was grateful that they gave me that option. And um, then it was the period after submitting that you had, of course, the reading and the sending it out for review by independent you know, reviewers. And that was done. That took a while. And pardon me, wrong. we worked the first volume and got that out of the way. And then when that was out of the way and all the copy editing was done, they said, now let's move on to volume two. So uh, the first volume came out in 2019. The second volume was published in 2021 as a 2020 publication. The pandemic came in intervened, and slowed things down considerably. All right. now after that moment i continued to think and to write but in the intervening years while i was bringing the manuscript to completion i edited a book called the Car- um globalization sovereignty and citizenship in the caribbean and um that i contributed a lot to that and other colleagues and friends did as well then I published a number of other articles in the interim. And since then, I've done a lot of thinking about other work. As I told you where I at the beginning, where I am now with this project, Sovereignty and Currency, and the book, The Critique of Black Marxism, that I'm collaborating with colleagues on. And... Um, at this stage, I favorite look. Um, everyone close to me, especially relatives, say they have. They do not believe me when I say to them that I have retired. That I seem to spend as much time. I don't travel as much as I used to to academic meetings and so on. I don't have much interest in doing that. But I try to keep the brain and the mind stimulated, you know, reading broadly and always at the computer, you know, work collaborating with others on notes and comments about a variety of topics of, of importance to us. And um, I think I have set the pace now to uh, keep working within, you know, at a, at a very different level. I retired when I was ready in 2013. I've had no regrets, whatever. I've never wished for one moment that I was still in the classroom. I don't know why I would want to be doing that at this stage. And I think increasingly of other things I want to do, travel here, there, and do some other things. I haven't done any major traveling since 2018 when I did a safari in East Africa, I went to Kenya for the the, um, the the Kenya portion of the Serengeti was called the Maasai Mara, and then um, I was in Barbados in September 2021 for the memorial service for my late wife, who had that glioblastoma tumor that took her life, and um, now it's a matter of you know getting on with, with with my life, still having very high level of intellectual curiosity, and um, being still driven, sometimes I say to myself, I need to put the brakes on, but I get great satisfaction from, you know,
1: that intellectual curiosity and in the reading and engaging with others. Thank you for your generosity and erudition in our conversation today. Thank you for your eloquent answers and your very thoughtful replies to everything we conversed about in the course of our dialogue and conversation.
2: Thank you, Ari. It's a pleasure to meet you. I'm very inspired and glad that I've had this opportunity. I look forward to working with you going on.
1: Thank you. I'm humbled and grateful and absolutely appreciate your kindness in participating in our talk today.
2: Thank you, Ari. Have a good evening.
1: As we as we bring our dialogue today to a close, I'm signing off by mentioning again that I'm Ari Barbalat, your host today on the new books in Caribbean Studies podcast. I've been in dialogue today with Dr. Hillborn Watson. He is Emeritus Professor of International Relations at Bucknell University. We've been discussing his new book, Errol Watson Barrow and the Postwar Transformation of Barbados, the Independence Period 1966-1976, to published in Kingston, Jamaica, by the University of the West Indies Press 2020. Thank you. Thank you, Andrea.